Thank you. I just want to make sure everyone knows this is tea. I, uh, by the grace of the Lord, uh, drink has never been a problem for me, uh, and just never grew up anywhere around it. it was never an issue, uh, and I got to tell you, it tastes nasty. Uh, we were we. I'd been invited. It's sort of a long story. I'll try and give you the Reader's Digest version, but I've developed a friendship over the last 25 years with a, a Jewish attorney. Uh, and hopefully he never sees this, right? In Albuquerque, New Mexico, I, I bought, 25 years ago, I bought a 1947 MG off of him and went out and, and trailered it back to, to Seattle. And in the pro, and he's, he's sort of a grumpy guy. He's single. And, uh, I can understand why. I'm sympathetic with, un, un, understand that. Uh, he's, he's crab, he's really grumpy, he barks at people, he, he's, he's, no, he's nasty, he's not a believer, obviously, and, um, but for some reason, he feels a, a friendship with me, I have no idea why, because I, I, I struggle being around him, when, like, he'll come to Seattle, and he's saying, I'm going to take you to a Seahawks game, which is, you know, great fun, uh, when they win, which doesn't happen very often, but, but, uh, and he, when he comes, he'll, he will adjust the, the radio in your car. He'll adjust your air conditioning. He will tell you where to park when you, when you go out. He'll tell you, don't go back in here. No, don't go in forward. And when I go home and complain to Rita, she said, well, why do you put up with it? Uh, and I said, it's just easier just to go along. He's that kind of a guy, right? So he calls me two, three uh, years ago, and he said, I want to go to Scotland, but I've never driven on the left-hand side of the road, and I know you grew up driving on the left-hand side of the road. So would you, would, you, uh, would you go with me to Scotland for two weeks and drive me around? And I thought, that would be the last thing that I want to do. <laughs> and so I couldn't tell him I'm going to pray about it. He never lets me talk to him about the things of the Lord. Uh, so I just said, let me think about it. So I said, you know, I, I talked to Rita and she agreed I should not do it. And I talked to the Lord and the Lord said, do it. <laughs> right. And it doesn't make any sense to me, but I say, okay. So he says, he's going to pay my way, which is kind of funny because we got halfway through the trip. Right. And he said, you know, I paid your airfare and I'm paying your meals. Don't you think it's good would be right for you to pick up your B and B costs? Right. And I'm thinking, well, that wasn't the deal we had when we got started, right? But what are you going to do, right? You're halfway through the trip. You say, sure, well, I'll pay for the B&B. And then I have to explain to Rita. But, but the one thing he wanted to go to a whiskey distillery. I mean, it's a long way around to tell you about my tea. But uh, <laughs> So we go to this whiskey distillery and... I, I drive him there, and he goes in, and I'm walking around with him, and you see all the, all the gear and everything. And, and, uh, and then you get to the end, and they take you to a showroom, and they're giving out little sort of communion cup size things of whiskey. And so I take one of them. And, and you know, in my day, I've, I've, I've worked with cars. I love cars, I, old cars. Sometimes you've got to siphon gas out of the gas tank. Some of you guys will know what that's like, right? You put a pipe down there and you suck until you get some, some vacuum and then the, then the gas. But sometimes you can't get your mouth out of the way in time, right? This little communion cup of whiskey tasted like the worst gasoline that I've ever got. I mean, it's just, and I thought, 
But you know what the Lord did? Uh, we're walking back in Inver- we're in Inverness. We're walking back to our B&B from dinner. And so he says out of the blue. So I noticed you don't drink. He said, is that because the Bible says no? And I said, well, no, actually, the Bible doesn't f- prohibit it. Bible prohibits drunkenness. But, but I'm a pastor, and we have people in our church who are, who are coming out of all kinds of struggles in their lives, and it would be absolutely irresponsible of me to be seen in any capacity. Uh, so, so he said, so do you believe everything the Bible says? So I had 15 minutes just ready for him on why the Bible is reliable. And, and so then he, then he says, and this, this never happened before in our 20. Then he says, so, so what's this Holy Ghost? What is Holy Ghost? So we spent another 15 minutes talking about the Trinity of God. And it turned out, I mean, I haven't gotten to lead him to the Lord, but he's getting very ill right now. He's about 10 years older than I am, and he's getting really ill. And I'm expecting a call on his deathbed. I really am, that I'll get a chance to lead him to the Lord. I've tried two or three times. He just blocks me. But I don't know why I told you that story, but... but um, I, I want to talk to you for just a few moments tonight. I believe we're in the last days. Um, but even as I say that, how many generations before us uh, during World War II or, uh, have said the same thing, right? So I don't want to be glib about it, but when you look around, I mean... Never before has there been a move for the globalization of national governments. Never before have we seen the the move to start chip implants in people. Uh, you know, my dad was funny. He 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 was so convinced of his eschatology that that's not going to be an issue till Jesus said that's that's the Antichrist. He'll use whatever technologies in the world. And so, you know, if you have to take a chip before. Um, go ahead. It's not a big issue. And, and I thought, Dad, I'm not that convinced of my eschatology. I'm taking no chip. Uh, but we're in, I believe we're in the last days. And it made me think just during worship down there, uh, I keep a little record of significant words of the Lord. There's not anything, I don't think you should make big life decisions based on people coming to you with a word from the Lord. But I will tell you that there have been significant times in my life. And I've told you before, even when I came here last time, that 2015-16 was probably the roughest time in my 35 years at Westgate Chapel. And I'd been convinced by a few guys that it was time for me to pack it up, that time for a young pastor and you need to go to pasture and you've done enough now. And, uh, and I was buying into it. And my family was saying, no, don't, don't do this. My kids are saying, Dad, there's still a lot more fire in you. Don't, don't give up on this thing. But, but you never believe your family, right? Because they love you and they've got to say stuff like that. Uh, so you kind of dismiss that. So the Lord has to send these people like the Ethiopian pastor I told you about this morning. Well, this was, I thought about this this morning, uh, this afternoon during worship, because this lady, uh, we'd done a week of prayer and fasting. It's dated uh, in August 2015. Our church had just done a week of prayer and fasting going into the fall of 2015. And at the end of that week, we were in our last prayer meeting and uh, Rita and I, my wife, were sitting in the front row, wrapping, we'd, prayer meeting had wrapped up, and a little 80-year-old 
uh, in her 80s, Hispanic lady came very to speak to me, very broken English. You could tell she was nervous about even coming to talk to me. Uh, but she said the Lord had been speaking to her for some time in the prayer meetings, but she had lacked the courage to come up and talk to me because her English was so bad. And she said the Lord told her three things. One, that I was to read Jeremiah 1, 5 through 8. That being a pastor is not something I chose or prepared for, but that God was the one who called me. And I, I imagine every pastor in this, in this room can identify with that. It's not, not a denomination that calls us. It's not, it's not even a career that calls us. Unless it's God that calls us, we should do something else, right? We'll work on cars or whatever. Uh, but that the Lord was calling me to be a pastor in the end times. That's what I knew where I was going with the message tonight. And this, this, that's why this word came back to me. That it didn't matter if the Lord was going to return tomorrow or a hundred years from now. These are the end times and I'm called to be an end times pastor. And you know, and, the, and honestly, I'm not saying this. This is not about me. I'm, the reason I'm reading this is I'm hoping that those of you who are here at the, for the conference who, who have a pastoral calling will identify with this yourselves. If you're in the ministry now, it, 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 whether you're a, a volunteer in ministry or if you're a, a full-time pastor or a part-time pastor, uh, we've been called to pastor the body of Christ in North America right now and wherever else he takes us because these are the last days. And there's something that is, there's something that is, has an urgency and a, and a, a fearfulness, not in, the, not in a, a negative way of being fearful. But we need to be very concerned about everything we do and everything we believe and everything we say. And wherever we allow ourselves, not just go because we think it's a good idea, not just do because it seems like a good thing to do. But we need to be following the Lord right now more than ever before. This is not, this is not pastoral ministry on autopilot. We've never pastored in these kind of times before. We've never pastored when people could walk in our door, which they did a few weeks ago, a man dressed in women's clothing and wanted to go into our women's restroom. Fortunately, some ushers were sharp enough to go and lovingly say to him, you know what, we, we have another place maybe where you can go here, but, you, but this, is not, this is not for you. But we've never navigated this. Then they came to me and they said, we need a policy for this. And I thought, well, great. I what kind of policy, you know, if how are you going to have? Yeah, prove it. You say you're a woman. Prove, you see where we're going with this, right? So, so we're end times pastors. And then she said, number two, that I was not to be influenced by anyone but him. Concerning the words I'm to speak, that he'll put words in my mouth and that I'm to be bold and faithful to these words. She added, this is some of how you know it's the Lord, that I'm to stop being hesitant. Nobody but my family would know that about me. Stop being hesitant. She says she senses that I'm sometimes hesitant in my leadership and I'm to stop that and walk in the boldness God has given me. Number three, that I was Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. This is for every pastor. The city of God uh, with, uh, with living stones of the people that he's given us, that I'm not to stop church awakening because the walls of the church, capital C need repair and, and they, and they need repair beyond our local church. And then she said, just out of the blue, don't think about stopping. 
Um, and, and I just thought, you know what, that's, that's interesting because we are, we're in the last days. These, these are the last days. And I understand that that has, I'm not intimidated by the fact that other people have said that because I want to go to 1 John chapter 2 with you for a few moments tonight. And, and the Apostle John says that. Right, but I want to show you a graph, a chart, and I'm not a chart person. I don't, I don't have a chart hanging in my office. I haven't, I haven't, the reason I haven't preached a series on Revelation for a long time is because I did that when I was 30 and I was, knew what I was talking about, and now I'm not so sure, right? Uh, and so it'd be a while, I won't be doing a series in Revelation again. Uh, but I want to show you this, this chart. Uh, that of my, I did a sermon in, in first Thessalonians chapter four. Thank you. And, uh, and our graphics folks put this up for me, uh, for first, first Thessalonians four about the return of the Lord. And Paul is very clear in how he lays that out. And I just thought I'd just sort of set the context for tonight by, by showing this to you. Um, and it's not foolproof, but that the return of Christ in the clouds signals the end of the last days. We're in the last days, but, but no one's going to say that the last days are done until the father says they're done. And then Jesus returns in the air. I checked with your pastor before I preach this. I want to make sure we, we, I wasn't conflicting with his eschatology. So I'm, I'm, I was appreciating his answer. And then, of course, as soon as the return of Christ comes in the air, we who, first of all, the dead in Christ shall rise. And so just leave that there for a moment, please. And everyone who has died in Christ, including my dad, my little old dad, who passed away in 1992, and, and his, his body's buried outside of Peter Maritzburg in South Africa, and I, 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 I've never had a chance to go back and visit it, but that grave's going to open someday. And my mom is buried in Seattle, Washington, but that doesn't matter. Her grave's going to open someday. And the minute Christ returns and the trumpet of God sounds, those who were dead in Christ, whether they're dust, whether they've been incinerated somehow, whether they were in Hiroshima or doesn't matter, God who created us in the first place is able to reconstruct our DNA out of the dust of what's left of us and give us a brand new body in Christ Jesus, right? Then we, then we who are alive and remain when he comes back will be caught up with him in the air. He doesn't come back, I don't believe, on this, on this earth yet in this process. And then the tribulation begins. And the first thing that happens in the tribulation is the great falling away of believers who thought they were believers and walking with the Lord, but were cold and indifferent in their hearts, which is why being an end times pastor is so critical right now, is because we've got to stay, keep the fire lit in our own hearts, and we've got to keep the fire lit in the congregations God has sent us to, so that, so that they're not not part of the great falling away. And then there'll be the Antichrist will be revealed. And then uh, the restrainer, I believe, which is the Holy Spirit will be removed from the earth. And then the mid tribulation and then the deceiving of the deceived. And then the Antichrist is destroyed in the end of the tribulation. And then then the, 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 the thousand year reign with Christ begins. I want you to see that. And then I want you to see one other one other drawing that we put together for you. 
so that what John is about to say will make sense to you. So let's go to the next one, if we could. So the, the, these are the, 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 this is the best way I've seen to describe the last days, that the timeline on the horizontal axis of this, of this graph is all of the, all the things that happened before Christ. So we got, you got Moses in that timeline. You've got, you've got Samuel in there. You've got King David in there. You got everything that happens until Galatians 4, 4 in the fullness of time, Christ came to this earth. And that's the round dot at the end of, of the timeline before Christ. And the minute Jesus came on this earth and established the kingdom of God and access to the kingdom for us later through his death and resurrection, the minute that happened, we, the last days started. So Jesus initiated the last days. And so that you can see where each of the apostles on that vertical timeline, and now we're the, we're the top red arrow on that vertical timeline. And who knows the dotted line, what the future holds, but we're all in the last days. So John could say, these are the last days, but, but, but in reality, we're living in them even more so today. So if John thought we were in the last days, then we need to look at what's happening around us. And maybe there'll be another generation before Jesus comes back. But all I know is that I'm responsible right now and you're responsible right now for being ready if he came back tomorrow. All right. So let's go into the text very just very quickly. First, I just want to just touch on the fact that that Peter in his famous Pentecost Day sermon says in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. So John, I mean, Peter is pulling from Joel's prophecy in the Old Testament and bringing it into the present Pentecost experience and telling us that what Joel foresaw and prophesied now has happened happen and the last days have begun. And then Peter later says, God chose him, that is Jesus, as your ransom long before the world began. But now in these last days, he has been revealed for your sake. So now we're ready for John chapter, 1 John chapter 2. John says in verse 18, dear children, the last hour is here. So he's even gone beyond the last days. He's telling us the last hour is here. So if that's true, we're in the last second on that vertical axis axis of that graph. So so we've got to understand there is an urgency right now not just for ministry But there's an urgency that we need to feel and be convinced of regarding how we live. Uh, I want you to understand that this is we can't there's no time for playing religion anymore. There's no time for playing loose, fast and loose with the Lord right now. Now's the time for us to get really serious about the Lord. Right. Uh, and, and John is sitting, think about where he's at. John is sitting in a prison in the Isle of Patmos. I've had the privilege of visiting the cave that was his prison. And looking across the Aegean Sea from the cave in Patmos, you can't even see the coastline where Ephesus would have been and all the churches he was responsible for. And he's realizing, he's sensing, Domitian is the emperor at that time. And he was launching some of the most severe persecution that the early 
early church had ever seen. And so he's experiencing it and he knows the believers he loves and he longs for that in those churches across the Aegean Sea are experiencing and going to experience even worse. And it makes me wonder, we've had it easy in this country especially in the Pacific Northwest, but maybe you guys too. We got mountains to climb so we can climb mountains. We got skis to go, places to go ski, we can go ski. We can go fishing in the lakes and in the, in the Puget Sound for salmon. We, we can, we, there's so many things that are going on. When I first got to Westgate Chapel, it was called the Nordstrom's Church of, of the Seattle area because everyone was uber wealthy and they all had been Scandinavians who had worked hard and picked themselves up by their bootstraps and they were third generation Pentecostals. So they had some semblance of interest in Pentecostal things, but they never understood what their parents and their grandparents had paid for to give them a Pentecostal heritage. And they didn't want to pay for it themselves. They wanted to ride on the shirt tails of their parents and their grandparents. And so when I started preaching about prayer and revival and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, it was like glazed over, Right. Because it was too comfortable living in the Pacific Northwest. Now in the Pacific Northwest, things are changing. They passed a law this last February that the legislator passed, legislator, uh, legislature passed, and our governor signed into law now that, that the state can, if they find out that your children, minors' children, are wanting to be transitioned sexually, gender-wise, with either surgery or with chemical castration, that they can actually take your children from you out of school or out of whatever activities they're in or the doctor's office and can take them away and you will never know where they are and when they bring them back to you eventually they will have already have had the surgery now listen i i do believe we don't battle against flesh and blood i believe that and i understand that we've got to be godly we got to love people because these are all people jesus died for but i got to tell you i have to be very careful what i said at the church in there in seattle because i want you to know i'm a grandparent of four little grandchildren and i think my sons-in-law feel the same way if you think for a moment i don't care what laws you've passed if you think for a moment that you've got going to come and take my grandchildren I, i've got some some hardware at my house that 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 are very that's very similar let's listen wait wait that's very similar to my own initials that that will tell you you ain't taking my grandkids you'll have to take them over my dead body i mean we're living in insanity seriously we're living in insanity and it's not just the west coast as bad as it is it's all over so it so it's wake up time now for a lot of those people, when we started prayer meetings or when God started prayer meetings, a lot of those people left us. They, they, they didn't want anything, any part of it. Um, and in fact, I was so impressed last night. I took photographs of, the, of your prayer meeting and the kids that were up here and the young people. You guys blessed me. I, I posted it online because I said, this is how we're going to win the war for our children is to get them in the presence of the Lord. When we started our prayer meetings, I shut down Everything I knew it would be hard to convince Northwesterners we needed prayer. And so when the Lord told us to start prayer meetings, we, we shut for, for three months, turned out four or five months. We shut down everything except Sunday services and prayer meetings. 
We had Sunday service, Sunday school during Sunday school, morning service, and we had prayer meetings. That's all we had until prayer caught on and became part of the culture. One family wrote me and they said, you don't care for our children. I said, no, ma'am, it's precisely because I care for your children that I think they need to see you in the altar area with your hands lifted, calling on the Lord, who is our only hope and our only salvation. So I love seeing your children up here. But John is concerned about these believers, as I'm concerned even about Westgate Chapel, which is part of what motivated me to preach this message here this summer sometime. John is motivated by an urgency, and and the, the urgency is that there is a last hour deception that's going on. Think about even even outside of spiritual things in the church. Think about the massive deception going on in our nation right now. Think about the lies we're being told every day that people are buying into, hook, line, and sinker. And realize that that massive deception is, is, is rampant in the church of Jesus Christ. Not even about these political issues, but about spiritual issues. And, and, and along with these last days that we're living in, there is an urgency John was sensing that the believers in the New Testament churches, he was responsible for not be susceptible to deception. And I want to say to my fellow pastors, I want to say to all of you who are believers and kingdom workers, I want to say to you, you've got to be on your guard right now. Not to be fearful, not to fall into a defensive posture, but we've got to be on our guard because there's coming a time where even Jesus said the deception will be so so severe when it gets close to his time to return that even if it were possible that even the elect would be deceived. So we've got to not be naive about this thing because because, uh, social media and other avenues of communicating have multiplied exponentially since then, even in the last four or five years. So the ability of the enemy to disseminate deceptive information is incredibly uh, vast and incredibly uh, incisive. And so John writes in chapter 2 and verse 18, you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, that is after Jesus returns in the air, And already many such antichrists have appeared. And from this we know that the last hour has come. The the theology that John was battling was the beginnings of what was later called Gnosticism, which very simply was a belief back then that Jesus was on this earth in a physical body, but the spiritual aspect of Jesus was just sort of very elusive, and it was was not, he was here in a spiritual sense, but not in a real body. Well, that's problematic, because if Jesus is both, not both son of God in the physical sense, but in the spiritual sense, then he has no ability to die on the cross physically for our salvation. So it's a huge issue, but it's come in, it's crept in so insidiously because it, the Gnostics were the people who believed we just, you just need an experience. You, you don't need much foundation. You just need an experience. And with that experience, you, you'll have this great spiritual knowledge and wisdom. And I want to tell you here tonight, and I know you believe this already because I know where your pastors are at. But yes, you need an experience. But that experience has got to be backed by a tremendous knowledge of the Word of God. You've got to be so proficient in the, in the Word of God that you're not taken captive by the deception that's coming.
I don't want to go into detail about what John was facing in his day, but I just want to say it doesn't take much thinking to come up with a list of the kinds of deception that are pre- that's prevailing in the church today. In many places in the church, the word of God is not even taken as authoritative anymore. And by that, I mean the whole word of God, the Old Testament and the New Testament. I, I mean, uh, bless Andy Stanley's heart. I don't know what. And I mean that in the Louisiana sense of blessing his heart. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking. And I usually don't name names, but this is part of the deception. Right. That about two years ago, he said, it's time for New Testament Christians to disengage themselves from the Old Testament. Right. He said that from the pulpit. And so so we got folks who are trying folks who have credibility, so to speak, folks who have all kinds of accreditation and degrees behind their name, folks who have impressive national platforms and all kinds of social media followers are are leading the body of Christ astray. And people who are gullible and not versed in the word of God are buying into it. So that there's no such thing as absolute truth, which has always been ridiculous to me because that statement itself doesn't stand up to their own claim. Do you mean, you mean there's no absolute truth? Does that include what you just said? Right? That there are many ways to God. You, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't believe if you've seen some of the surveys I've been looking at. How, how many Christians believe that, how many born, so, so to speak, born again believers believe that there are many ways to God. That the Holy Spirit is just an influence. He's not a person. That the Bible can be ignored when it says that God made them to be male and female. That, that the Bible can be ignored when it's, when it's said that, 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 that the marriage is supposed to be honored between a husband and a wife. Right? That there is no urgency to obey scripture and live a holy life. I'm telling you right now, there's an urgency to live a holy life. We need to, there's been so many calls these few days that I've been at this conference with you. There's so, been so many calls for self-examination. And again, I understand that I do believe that the answer is Jesus. But I think we've got to be brutally honest with ourselves because I think even as Pentecostal believers, we've allowed and indulged, have indulged ourselves with certain behaviors and activities that, that are not going to be acceptable anymore. Right? We've abandoned what my father and my father's generation called biblical holiness. We've, we've given it up because it wasn't popular and it wouldn't get much of a social media following. But I'm telling you, if Jesus is coming back soon and the days that are numbered before we see him return again, he's coming back for a holy bride without, without spot or wrinkle or blemish. I want to be part of that holy bride. I don't want to be left behind mushing about in the, in the tribulation. I want to be go. I'm ready to go in the first load. Here's another one. There's no need to be connected to the local church. I had a good friend of mine who pastors a Baptist church in Edmonds say to me a few months ago that one of his key parishioners, foundational parishioners came to him and said, well, you know, pastor, we, we've loved your ministry and we love being here. But, you know, we fi- we figured out since COVID that Sundays for us is, is more about our bathrobes and coffee and newspapers. Um, and so you, you won't be seeing us. Thank you for all you've done. God bless you. But, but peace out. We're, we're done. We're not coming to church anymore. 
Now, can you make it to heaven watching? Yeah, you could. Pro- you probably can. But there's a reason we're called to be a part of the body of Christ. There's a reason we're connected to one another. There's a reason that face-to-face fellowship is so critical that the Holy Spirit penned 52 commands in the New Testament that are connected with the phrase one another, love one another, be kind to one another, be hospitable with one another, take care, dis- encourage one another, correct one. There are 52 one another passages that you can't do watching on streaming or Zoom. It doesn't work that way. You need to be face to face so that life on life can be part of our discipleship process. And I love that we have the streaming for those who who are in urgent situations who are traveling or on a trip or something. But basically, you need to be in the body of Christ. I don't mean to be laying a guilt trip on folks, but if Jesus is coming back again, I need I need the body of Christ. So John goes on. These people left our churches, verse 19, but they never really belonged with us. Otherwise, they would have stayed with us. And when they left, it proved that they did not belong to us. Across our nation, I think one of the things we need to be praying about on a regular basis is, oh God, those who have drifted away and been taken captive by the deception that's out there right now. God, would you bring them back? Not for our numbers' sake, uh, not for anybody's sake, but their own souls and the preservation of their lives and their children. If they've deemed that church is no longer worth worthy of their time, imagine, imagine what their kids are going to conclude and what their kids are going to do. So, so we're, we're moving in days right now where deception is rampant and we've all got to be on our toes spiritually leaning in. And then fortunately, John gives us two keys for how to do this. And the first key is you, you, can, you can overcome and be anchored during the time of deception by knowing the truth. Now that sounds very simple, but let, let's look what John says, verse 20. But you are not like that. And I know I'm preaching to the choir tonight, or you wouldn't even be here on a Saturday night, especially when NLSU is playing. They may even win tonight because you chose church in the presence of God. I don't know. I don't know about that. Okay. But, but you're not like that for the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy One has given you his spirit, and all of you know the truth. Here's the key. Here's the key that makes me concerned about some of our evangelical brothers and sisters who kind of keep the Holy Spirit locked up back in the closet somewhere. This is the time for us to be spirit-filled believers. If you've not been baptized in the Holy Spirit yet, I would, I would encourage you, begin seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And if you say, well, I used to do that and it never quite happened, I want to encourage you, keep doing it. Ask the Holy Spirit to increase your hunger to where you get so desperate you ready to say to him, Lord, whatever it takes, I need the baptism of your Holy Spirit. Because the only antidote, it's not even knowing the Bible. The only antidote is knowing the truth, which is the Holy Spirit who inspires and convicts and convinces through the word of God. I, I'm afraid when I stand at Westgate and look out across the congregation, I'm afraid, I don't, I'm afraid to ask how many of you were in the word this week? How many of you are in the word on a daily basis? Because honestly, 
given the way the government's going here and what happened with COVID and whatever they say now is coming down the pike with this next whatever, whatever they've got up their sleeves, whatever the enemy is trying to do, there may come a time when they put chains around the doors of the churches and put state troopers out. There's happened lots of other places. We've, we've gotten off scot-free for a long time. So when then what are you going to do when Pastor Lee or if you're from another congregation, when, when you've been locked up, right? And, and uh, what, what are your people going to do unless they have their own discipline and, and Holy Spirit guided engagement with the word of God? Listen, I've been at this for a long time, which I'm sure you can tell. I'm not 29 anymore. But still, when I get in my quiet time in the morning in my recliner, I open up the word of God. And to this day, I'll say, oh, Holy Spirit, good morning. Good morning, Father. Good morning, Jesus, my Savior, my Redeemer. Good morning, Holy Spirit. I I invite you. I can't read this word just on my own. Otherwise, it's just black ink on white paper. Holy Spirit, please come. And I actively, every day that I'm in the word, I'm not looking for sermons. I'm looking to be fed in my inner man by the word of God so that I've got an anchor in truth when deception comes that I'm not prepared for, right? So you need the Holy Spirit. Invite him in. And then if you're from this congregation, don't just let Pastor Lee or your pastoral staff or your Sunday school teachers or whatever be the only ones who grapple with the word and study the word. You've got to be in the word if you're never used to teach or preach a sermon ever. You've got to be in the word so that that word becomes solid in you. And it becomes like, you know, in our house, we have we live in a little more dangerous maybe territory than you guys do. And we, Rita and I are, you know, getting on in years. And, and so we have an alarm system, right? And all of our windows and all of our doors have an alarm on them. I just want a little head start on the bad guy before he comes in, right? And uh, so we got this alarm in there. And because we just have one motion detector, we have our, our we, we have like a great room, living room, dining room, kitchen. It's all in one. It's all in one. And so we've got a motion detector up in the corner that looks down over all of this. So we're in the bedroom back there. You'd, if you break, if you, if you break a window, then, then we got you in that end of the house. But I want to know if something's happening out here. So we have windows and doors covered with the alarm, but we also have uh, a motion detector, right? Uh, the only problem is when you're 75, you tend to sometimes be a little forgetful early in the morning when you haven't had your coffee and you haven't woken up yet. So I'll come out sometimes, it doesn't happen very often, often, and my neighbors are grateful for this, but I'll come out sometimes with my bathrobe stumbling, kind of heading down to start, get the coffee on, and I've forgotten to, to uh, turn the alarm off. And suddenly, woo, 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 right? Because it's there, it's sensing any movement. You can't move in that living room area without tripping that thing off. But you also have to keep care of it because here a couple of months ago it started going off all on its own when nobody was out there and that's because we learned a spider had 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 developed a nest up right behind it sits right in the corner of the of the roof and a spider had developed a nest and some of the some of the spider webs or cobwebs or wherever had kind of I chastised my wife for why her cleaning didn't include up that high but but not very long. I didn't do it very long. And, and, uh, and we had to take a duster on a long thingy-jiggy because it gave a false alarm when the, when the motion detector got 
got messed up with cobwebs through disuse. And I thought, what an incredible example of the believer who's not in the word and doesn't have the Holy Spirit guiding them in truth. And your, your, your spiritual sensor, the Holy Spirit, he doesn't withdraw from you, but, but you're not used to talking to him and you're not loose, used to listening to him. And so after a while, your spiritual sensor gets cobwebs and gets some dust over it and you begin to get false reading on stuff because you're not cleaned off and listening to what the Holy Spirit is saying. So you've got to please, please, if I could get on my knees and beg you, you've got to be in the word with the Holy Spirit for yourself. I'm writing this to you, Paul, John says, not because you don't know the truth, but because you know the difference. And that word know in the Greek literally means to look at and to examine and inspect and demonstrate. I was in Exodus 37 the other day and the Holy Spirit spoke to me so clearly because in Exodus 37, the the constructors of the tabernacle are following every instruction that God had given Moses on the mountain to the last detail. Every detail they they were taking care of, doing exactly as God said. And suddenly I realized... That back in 2006, when I was riding motorcycle with some guys from the church through eastern Washington, through the wheat fields, and watching the combines in early August go through the wheat fields of eastern Washington, dust going up from the combines, and the Holy Spirit said so clearly to me inside of my helmet, ask me for the state of Washington. And yes, we came home and we built a, a ministry called Church Awakening, uh, not just for Northwest pastors and leaders, but, but we, we, yes, we, yes, we were obedient there. But I've not been every day saying, God, ask me for the state of Washington. So I, I, had to, I had to challenge, I had to repent to our congregation. Last prayer meeting, I think, last Tuesday. And I said, please forgive me. But I'm asking you, please, would you join me? And, and we're just going to ask God. He said, ask me for the state of Washington. I want to obey him down to that level of detail. And the Holy Spirit reminded me of that out of Exodus 37. Had nothing to do with Exodus 37. But the Holy Spirit and the word speaks to you and guides you. Listen, open your ears spiritually so you can hear his voice. He will guide you around every pitfall and every kind of, every time you run into somebody who's a false teacher, that alarm will start going off. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, there's something off here. Not sure what it is, but we got to be careful. So we we're not so knowing the truth is important, but here's the last part that surprised me. John moves from what we know to what we say. And I'm not into name it and claim it, so don't panic about that. But, but I want you to know that what we say is hugely influential, beginning with our own selves. What comes out of our mouth influences us. Yes, it influences other people, but it influences us immensely. That's why Jesus said, how can you, being evil, in Matthew 12, uh, speak good, uh, good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks so the speaking of the mouth, listen, I'm sorry, I'm, getting, I, I'm going over time. If, if what you say is not important and, oh, well, God can always correct it later, then why did he go to such lengths to stop the prophet Balaam from cursing Israel? Answer, answer me. I don't mean right now, but answer me that question. Uh, he could have just said, all right, go ahead and curse Israel and I'll just turn it in the air and it won't land. No, look at all the things he did. But why? Because the words that we speak have huge spiritual impact beginning on ourselves. 
right? John is still going after those influenced by, by the spirit of the Antichrist. And watch, watch in this, these next few verses, and I'm getting close to wrapping up. Watch in these next few verses how it, it all is about verbal stuff now, okay? Not knowing any longer. It's not about knowing any longer. It's about who is and who is a liar. Anyone who says there's agreeing with the lie, Jesus is not the Christ. Anyone who denies, that's verbal, the Father and, and the Son is an Antichrist. And anyone who denies the Son doesn't have the Father either. So clearly John is saying here that what we say is hugely important. But here's the anchor to this whole passage. But anyone who acknowledges The son has the father also. And that word acknowledge means, quote, to profess in a manner accessible to or observable by the public. To confess. Anyone who acknowledges is to say something to profess in a manner acceptable. I mean, accessible to or observable to the public. Here's how I'd like to kind of wrap things up a little bit tonight. This is my first conclusion. I have several. Um. But we have been silent in this country far too long. I personally believe, you don't have to agree with me, that the mess our nation is in, it's not the Democrats' fault. Uh, it's not, although they're playing into it, but it's not the Republicans' fault. It's not going to really matter in terms of these kinds of things, who's in the White House, while I have concerns about those things. And I think the Christian has to be engaged in those things. But I will say the reason we're in this mess is because the church of Jesus has been quiet on things that are clearly biblical. I'm not talking about political theory or economic theory, but, but how many Christians in the workplace have had people curse the Lord and they've said nothing about it, didn't want to offend? We have such an incredible culture about, well, that offends me. Well, you know what? It's amazing. Offend and offense never really hurts anybody. So it's not like you're hitting them over the head with a, with a ball bat or something. It's just, all right, good, we'll be offended. But I, I want you to know, this is, this is what I believe. But we've been silent. We've been quiet. We were quiet on abortion. We, we were quiet, right, on, uh, you, frankly, and I say this with all respect to the precious people of color, but when, I didn't say anything. When Obama lit up the, first of all, he said that he was, uh, in, not in, he was in favor of biblical marriage, right? Then he flipped, and when it was passed, the, the, the Equity and Marriage Act was passed, he lit the White House up in, in rainbow colors. I said nothing even from the pulpit, because I, I I knew that there were African-American people in our church whom I love who were just so excited that there was someone who looked like them in the White House. And I agreed with that. I thought that was a good thing. But when he did something contrary to the word of God, I said nothing because I was afraid of offending. I'm not saying, please, I'm not saying we should be brash or insensitive or ugly or cruel or, or whatever. But I'm saying it's time for us to lovingly, kindly, in the Holy Spirit, speak up and say, no, I'm sorry, that's, that's not right. I'm sorry it offends you, but that's not right. My, my daughter took her 12-year-old daughter to the pediatrician she's been going to in, in Washington for the, whole, for the child, my grandchild's whole life. And the doctor said, you know, when she's 13, you may no longer come in here with them. And I thought, 
And I know Vanessa feels the same. I thought, no, that ain't going to happen. If I have to get my medical degree on the side somewhere, uh, or if we got to find us a Christian pediatrician, we'll, we, we will do it. But we're not, we're not, and we can, and, she, and Vanessa did. Vanessa said, I'm sorry, that, that's not going to happen. Oh, she said, well, you, the doctor said, oh, you could have her sign uh, a letter that allows uh, you to come in with her. And Vanessa said, no, we're not going to be doing that either. Right? It's time for us to lovingly, please. I'm not talking about being, sometimes the homosexual community has a legitimate concern against the church because we've been nasty in lots, you know, name calling, we've been nasty. And so we've got to clean that up. We've got to ask forgiveness for that. But at the same time, we've got to be willing to say, this is what the word, God's word says, and we're standing and we love you. And, and if this causes us to part company, or if I have to lose my job over this, that, that's fine. We had a lady just fired by Microsoft because in the lunchroom during break, she shared the gospel with one of her coworkers. And the coworker was offended, and the manager brought her in, and, and she was high up in, in, in Microsoft, got fired because she shared her faith. Well, so be it. Let the persecution come. I'm an end times pastor. <laughs> Right. And if I end up in jail somewhere, uh, they won't have to keep me there very long because it's probably not too long before the Lord will take me. But but whatever, let's 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 get it on. We're going to serve the Lord. And it's time for the body of Christ to get together and to say so. It's time for us to say so. I'm a child of God. I've been washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. And I believe in the word of God from cover to cover. And no, we don't, we don't accept that. We're not going to buy into that. We're not going to agree with it. And, and this is where the truth, we got to say it, right? We got to say it. So I thought, what a great way, and I got your pastor's permission to do this. What a great way to close tonight by saying the, the Nicene Creed together. The issue that John was contending with about the deity of Christ and think about it, those New Testament believers, they had no New Testament. So when they talk about Scripture, they're talking about the Old Testament. Yes, there were some letters that got passed around, but it hadn't been put into canon yet. So think about the story. But still, the deity of Christ, even though it seems like a done deal to us, it was still being hammered out in those days. And so when I was in Greece visiting some of our missionaries, I'm sorry, in, in Turkey visiting some of our missionaries recently, I found out that the, 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 the basilica at where the Nicene Council was held is in a little town called Iznik. And we rented a car and we drove, took us four hours to get there. And the basilica is underwater, so you can't really see it, but there's some satellite photographs. I just wanted to be there because when the, nice, when the Council of Nicaea hammered out this issue of the deity of Jesus and who he really was, we're sitting in this building because some folks, and listen, hammered that stuff out. And the guy who was the greatest proponent for the complete deity of Jesus in a physical body, when he got home, the, 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 the month of meetings was so severe and there was so much tent contention. When he got home, he died from the wounds he received battling for the, the argument of the deity of Jesus Christ. So this creed means something. Somebody gave their life for this. And this is the kind of stuff that has guided our faith for years And I thought it would be just wonderful tonight with your pastor's permission to stand to your feet and we're going to read the Nicene Creed together. 
I want you to square your shoulders. I want you to get your feet a decent distance apart. And I want you to say this like you believe it. And I would love every demon force that's assigned to Baton Rouge and to First New Testament Church to hear the declaration of the people of God. We are here by the blood of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit. And this is, this is what we believe. Right, like, like Martin Luther said, this is where I stand. I can stand no other place. And this is the day we've been called to be followers of Jesus. I believe in one Lord Jesus. Oh, I'm sorry. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten of God, Born of the Father, before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, co-substantial with the Father, and that through him all things were made for us men and for our salvation. He came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became a man for our sake. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scripture. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And his kingdom will have no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is adored and glorified and who has spoken through the prophets. I believe in one holy and apostolic church. I confess one baptism for the forgiveness of sin. And I look forward to the resurrection of dead and the life of the world to come. Bless his name. Let's give him glory in this house. This is my last conclusion. Don't sit down. We're done. Winston Churchill was called finally by the government and the king to be the prime minister during World War II when Chamberlain had basically given the allies away to Hitler. And his first speech, I wish I could do his accent. I wish I can do his voice. But in his first speech, he said, His Majesty the King has not commissioned me to preside over the death of the British Empire. And when I hear that, I want to put my name in there. His Majesty, the Eternal King, has not summoned me to this position to preside over the demise of the Church of Jesus Christ. And I know you.